Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Remembering Us, the storytelling of everyday people dedicated to racial justice and healing. My name is Ellery. How's it going? Hey, everyone. This is Lisa. So in this series, we're going to be focusing on reparative genealogy, as you all heard from our last episode with Miss Lottie and Bree. And in this whole series, you're going to be hearing different stories from people who are doing genealogical or ancestral research that trace back their connection to slavery in the United States and how through this process of deep truth telling are making reparations. And we just want to thank everyone who has listened to our other episodes, who has shared the episodes. If someone comes to mind while you're listening, please share. Tell us what you think. We we do have an email, rememberinguspodcast at gmail.com. Rememberinguspodcast at gmail.com. And we now have an Instagram. Woo! Yay! <laughs> to social media illiterate people on social media. That's <laughs> great. So please check us out. Follow us at Remembering Us Podcast on Instagram. Uh, Also, we are gathering contributions. Speaking of reparations, we're gathering contributions to not only compensate our guests of color for bringing their stories or expertise to the podcast, but also for our editing and posting, monthly editing and posting softwares and to local BIPOC-led organizations dedicated to racial healing, starting first with Jubilee Justice. This definitely informed the work that we have brought to this podcast. So please check out a link in our description for some more info on that. And today we are very, very honored to have Morgan Curtis with us. She is guided by the call to transmute the legacy of her colonizing and enslaving ancestors. Morgan is dedicated to working with her fellow people with wealth and class privilege towards redistribution, atonement, and repair. As a facilitator, bunny coach, organizer, and ritualist, she works to catalyze the healing of relationships with self, family, ancestors, community, and the land enabling the surrender of power and control so that resources can flow towards racial, environmental, and economic justice. She is in the process of redistributing 100% of her inherited wealth and 50% of her income to primarily Black and Indigenous-led organizing and land projects. Morgan is a resident of Canical Farm, a multiracial, interfaith, cross-class, intergenerational, intentional community in Lisan Ohlone Territory so-called Oakland, California. She recently graduated from Harvard Divinity School, where she studied the spiritual dimensions of the reparations work required of white people. And you can check her out on her website and learn more morgancurtis.com. We are so, so honored and looking forward to this conversation, y'all. And before we do so, we'd like to do as usual start by by grounding to be a little bit more collected in this moment and for this conversation so wherever you find yourself coming to a place of relative stillness and if it feels accessible closing your eyes gently starting with intention of of being gentle in this moment with yourself your body, with your mind, your thoughts, 
And if closing your eyes is not appropriate in this moment, allowing your gaze to just be stopped. And as you do so, as you kind of come into this relative place of stillness in the body, begin to kind of collect your attention and bring your attention to your breath and notice where it goes to, where you pay attention to your breath. Noticing the natural flow of the inhale and the exhale. So maybe you feel that you notice that your attention is in the nostril. Maybe it's in a particular spot in your body, the chest, the belly. Where do you access your breath? And then with a little bit more intention, allow for the next inhale to start at the low belly so that there's a filling and expanding of the belly and allowing it to rise up through the rib cage into the chest, a, a gentle filling of the chest and the upper back. And then allow the exhale to be longer. Allow there to be this this softening as you exhale, this sense of letting go, of releasing, of giving away. And then maybe at the bottom of the exhale, squeezing out a little bit more before you take the next inhale in. So there's this natural receiving of the inhale and and then this intention of letting go of a little bit more with ease. And then as if there was a, a spotlight or a flashlight, a light that brings your awareness, that draws your awareness down into your belly. So imagining maybe a light in your low belly, right below the, the belly button. And as you inhale, breathe into that place so that there's this expansion in the low belly, which includes the backside. So there's an inhaling to expand, to widen to create space. And then with the exhale in the low belly, there's a settling in, there's a softening, there's a release and a giving away. And allow your attention to stay there for a couple moments in the low belly, this expansion and this softening. There's a taking in and a giving away. And then when you feel ready, allowing your eyes to gently blink open or allowing your gaze to scan the space that you're in, noticing where you are in space, the objects, the textures, the light. Welcome, Morgan. It is such a joy and honor to to be with you. So thank you for being with us this mm. this morning. It happens to be morning right now. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thank you so so much for having me and for that grounding. I needed that. Sweet. It's a good way to start the day. Mm -hmm. So starting off. In your journey 
through digging through your genealogical history and your connections to your ancestry, what what brought you to start doing this work? Hmm. For some reason, I was a like twelve year old kid who had an ancestry dot com account, so I was not raised in a family that had a critical analysis of our history, but we had a pride of our history. And I think even though it wasn't that explicit, there were these subtle messages to me, like a painting on the wall where it was like, no one knows who it is, but it's an ancestor. Um, Or my great-grandmother's family tree was like framed on the wall in a back room. And so there were these little clues that this mattered. And young me started getting interested in it. But I really only turned to it again when I was older, maybe in my early 20s. I'd found my way kind of through climate justice organizing into more and more spaces around particularly indigenous solidarity work and was being asked in those spaces, like, who are you, who are your people, and why are you here? And I had the privilege to be able to respond to who are your people with like, oh, here's like 500 names of who my people are. But realizing, oh, I really need to look into who these people actually are and what they did and how that brought me and my family about. So that was when I turned more deeply into investigating this history. What were some of the, as you were first diving into, you know, the, the fuller stories or you know, the more complete stories, what was the actual process like? And, and what was it like with, with your family? Because here you are starting off with these pictures hanging on the wall and there was this unspoken, I don't know if it's, you know, pride or honoring, you know, of the ancestors mm-hmm. and then what was the process like of developing, bringing into focus the fuller stories of who they were? And maybe you can share a little bit about, yeah, what you actually discovered. Yeah. Well, one of the first things I noticed was, I think I was 22 and my grandfather was dying and I was sitting with him and my father and my grandfather wanted to write his own obituary. So he was kind of dictating to us what he wanted to say about himself. And the first line was Charles Buckley Curtis descended from first settlers of Stratford, Connecticut. Like before he mentions his wife, his career, his kids, like that was the first line. And I think in that moment, it was like file away to look more into later. And as I started to look more into that history, the place that I was raised going to, the place where my, both of my parents grew up in Fairfield County, Connecticut, now one of the wealthiest counties in the United States, but historically Pogusset territory, historically a place that saw one of the final battles of the Pequot War in 1637. And my ancestors arrived there in 1638. 
And so that was one of the first things I learned was, oh, like we arrived in the wake of a massacre, like months later. And the people, whether it was us or those that we were in relationship with, had the nerve to go ahead and name a bunch of things in that town after the people that had been removed, massacred. And so those were some of my like first clues of, oh, there are very different stories here than the ones that are visible at the surface level of monuments in town and the name of the library and um, the pride of being descended from the founders. And yeah, it's not been easy for my family, particularly my dad, to have me uncovering, re-narrating these stories. Yeah, I think when I first started looking at the stories of the ancestors, my my father would say like, oh, you're you're disowning them or you're insulting them. I think ultimately what's happened through the process is I've become the person in my family who's closest to these ancestors and knows the most of their lives and their names and their stories. And people now turn to me saying, oh yeah, what was that story again? And so there's, yeah, I've, I've become infinitely closer to these people through learning their stories and putting them in a broader context of colonialism and slavery. And it's intimacy building. I'm the one that's taking the piles of genealogical research that my grandfather and great-grandmother had done. I'm now the steward of those, but mobilizing them in a different direction. And even while it's still difficult for various members of my families to question and to change what they've been told, there is now this respect for like, oh, Morgan is the one who's carrying this for all of us. And I think that for many members of my family, they've come to respect that. Of, this is just what this needs to look like now at this time. That is so powerful when you talk about what it actually does bringing you closer together, the truth telling, the reframing into multiple perspectives instead of just this one lens that we get conditioned into. Can you speak to your own process as you grew and, and learned more and more and found new framing? What was that like for your own personal journey of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Many twists and turns, <laughs> ups and downs. I would say there's, there's parts of this journey where when I learn particular details, like there's nothing I could want more than to not be connected to what I'm reading about, whether it's the ancestor my brother was named for our five greats grandfather, I learned just like two years ago that he was an investor in two slave trading ships. And when I read things like that, the the instinct of revulsion and separation and wishing that the story could be anything different is totally right there. And it's a loop. It's like, as I want to push him away, it's like there's parts of myself that I want to push away and like, as I have the instincts to hate him, the hate comes right back at me. And that's, that's all still there. 
And then also, I feel like what I've come to see is it's like, yeah, these histories call me in to a responsibility in this lifetime that is the most potent and powerful part of my life, which is like the responsibility for healing and repair and like the small ways that I've been able to be part of that already in this lifetime, whether it's moving resources or being part of organizing effort campaigns, supporting work for Black liberation, Indigenous sovereignty. That's the greatest gift of my lifetime to get to respond to these histories as best I can. So it's, yeah, big ups and downs. It's so I, you know, I personally totally relate because I have a similar story of learning the stories of the ancestors. And I also have a brother who was named after mm-hmm. uh, an ancestor who is a part of a lineage of white settlers and slavers. And, um, and so there's this moment of like losing sense of who I am, who we are. So there's this moment for me, it was like this whole paradigm shift of what I understood to be us and me, you know, in particular. And, but what I find really moving about your process is that these stories are always alive in us. These stories of our ancestors are always alive. The past is always with us. And in your process of bringing to light these stories, it's kind of guiding the trajectory of your life. And it's becoming this, without putting words in your mouth, it's becoming this motivating piece of how you show up in the world. And so I'm wondering, what was the process of learning these stories and how you came to take the responsibility of bringing in the redistribution of money? How, what was that process like? We all have, you know, different roles, right? And and what I find so powerful is that your story is informing how you move in the world. So if you could speak to, yeah, a little bit of where you came to realize it was the money and the redistribution of wealth. So when I was a undergraduate student, I was part of a campaign to try and get our university to divest from the fossil fuel industry. And about that same time, I stumbled into learning that my father, when I was very young, had started um, like a college fund for me that was, by the point I learned about it, about $350,000 and invested in the fossil fuel industry. And so here I was, a campaigner asking an institution to shift its financial practices in line with something that felt deeply morally imperative and in my name the same investments were happening and so it was kind of a early invitation into self-examination when looking at like what are the changes that are being called for in the world in terms of our economic systems how can they be more aligned with equity with justice with repair I had to look at oh wait I'm out of alignment with this and what can I do with the resources in my name? And initially, my father was very resistant to me either divesting this from 
cheapest fossil fuels or the stock market, let alone redistributing it. And so such began a, a many year process with my father that eventually resulted in me being able to redistribute that money. And along the way, when I finally kind of got permission for the first time to move, it was initially $50,000. He was like, okay, you can give away $50,000. And like, I had never given more than $50 to a GoFundMe. I was like, oh my God, I have literally no idea how to do this. And it was in that time that I found this organization called Resource Generation, which is organizing formation nationally in the United States that organizes young people with wealth and class privilege around redistribution of money, land, and power. And so I came to that organization and found people like me. I previously had thought that kind of my class privilege and identity and my politics were like a Venn diagram of one. And I was like, oh, wait, there's others. And it was in that space that I got the support I needed to yeah, find the courage to be like, okay, I'm going to move like tens of thousands of dollars into social movements. And as I got going in that work, I found that in the kind of organizing spaces I was in, I would talk about this as part of what I was doing, as part of my story. And increasingly, I would have people come up to me in the hallway and kind of whisper like, oh, like I yeah, I secretly have a trust fund or like, ah, I inherited money from my grandmother and so much kind of secrecy and silence and shame for even older folks who'd been, you know, politically active, deeply involved with movements in some cases for decades and had been ignoring, trying to pretend that it wasn't there, this other piece of their life, this financial reality. For so many different reasons, whether it's shame or lack of financial education, lack of peer support, lack of access or family barriers that are in the way. And as I was in my own process and as people kept coming to me, I was like, oh, yeah, this this is a piece of movement that needs some attention. Like, what if all of the organizers with secret trust funds could liberate those resources to fund our movements. And that's kind of where I've chosen to put my attention for the last six years or so. And it's such an important part, I feel like, with reparations work. It's so much more comfortable to talk about the government giving away and redistributing money. Oh. It's to have the government do it. And in my opinion, I think the movement where it's, you know, we're seeing how it looks in all aspects of our lives. It's interpersonal. It's deeply personal and familial. It's governmental. It's infrastructure. There's so many ways that we can enact reparations. And so it's very eye-opening to see an example, right? So clearly of how people come and whisper to you about trust funds, right? And and I can relate too. I can relate too. I had um, my mother and my stepfather gave all of us, uh, you know, my step um, siblings and me and my sister a chunk of money that was supposed to be for like a wedding, right? Or it was like five thousand dollars, something like that. But it was going to be in an investment fund. And this is something I haven't talked about. 
except with through how I mentioned Morgan through Poor Magazine, the family there that has 100% embedded this, you know, wealth distribution, the wealth boarding and enlightened so many of us about how there's so much shame towards it, right? And I could feel it in myself. But giving away that money, of course, the pushback, the parent, oh my God, my mom is like, why? You know, it, it had to be an investment fund. It gained even more money, a couple extra two, 3000 over a few years because I didn't know what to do with it. It felt gross. It felt gross. It felt unearned. It felt not mine. It felt like I didn't need it. You know what I mean? They already supported my education, my college degree. And, and I know so many people struggling who are my neighbors, who are people I love, people in my fit and like my close network, right? My chosen family. So, so how can I sit with that? Like you said, be in alignment with my values if I don't bring air to this. And the next step is being able to talk about it, because if it's shame, it's one thing to say, oh, I don't want to look like, oh, you know, oh, I'm donating. No, this is money that was never mine to begin with. It was inherited through generational privileges, whether it was an inheritance or just the access to having businesses or wealth or education or all these things that provide us more resources. So you know, I really appreciate just your openness and comfort in the work that shows the work that you've done through yourself and with connections with people in healing to bring light to the fact that there's a whole chunks of money attached to us, whole chunks of money that could be redistributed. And it's not just through government policy. It's through us and our choice, our action. Hmm. Yeah. So I thank you. I yeah. thank you for the work you do. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story, Ellery. And yeah, that piece you just closed with around like it's through us, not just the government. And it's it can be messy, right? Like is interpersonal money moving reparations in some ways? No, it's not. It's like not the big structural, institutional, multi-layered commitment that we need. And are we going to wait for our government to do something before we act as people in community like hell no <laughs> and I've even heard a movement practitioner Carlos Saavedra said to me he's like if the U.S. government went ahead and did reparations so many white Americans would just be let off the hook they'd be like oh the government did it we don't need to do it it's been done and so what we actually need is a grassroots movement of people saying this is actually ours to do, and we're going to make this happen from the bottom up. And by the time the government takes this action, like so many of us have been creating or following the pathways that have been asked of us. So I just, I really hear you on that piece, the relationship between the personal and the governmental. And in this whole process, Morgan, of like the interpersonal and the the looking into yourself and your inherited wealth and then working with other people, which I also appreciate about your story that you found support from the organization that you are working with. And, and then now in your work and in your journey, you're also creating uh, support and groups for people to also do this kind of work and to look at their inheritance and ways that they can redistribute their wealth. And so I'm curious because, you know, hearing both of you talk and reflecting on my body and myself in this moment, talking of like thinking about 
inherited wealth and money, it can be really fraught. And talking about money, it's a very loaded topic that can elicit a lot of different responses, depending on where we are, you know, who we are, where we come from, you know, what was accessible, available, given. And so I'm wondering in terms of your journey and working with other white folks, how does healing one's relationship with money play into this work? Yeah, so many different pieces to it. As as you said, like money in so many ways touches on such a wide variety of pieces of our life from like the daily decisions we make to where we live, how we live, what our friendships look like. And I think what what came in my experience and with many of the people that I support and work with and I'm in community with is that folks get to a place of like extreme discomfort in terms of knowing that the way that I'm being with money is fundamentally discordant with the world I want to build. So I think where where I came to in my own story and where um, the folks that I'm working with and in community with are often finding themselves is the place where what I'm doing with my money and the life that I'm living are fundamentally discordant and in tension with each other. And I hear so many stories of folks where it's like the packet of investment statements arrives in the mail every month and it has lists of corporations that are working on our behalf. And then I'm out in the streets with my friends protesting those same corporations the next day. And there's this turmoil inside of like, damn, this cannot continue. Or it looking at genealogy, looking at family history, seeing, oh, my two greats grandfather was part of the railway that brought the gold rush to California. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's more still in the formation of this country. I can't continue as it is. And yet shifting these realities, whether it's divesting from into movements can be perceived by whether it's parents or other family members that maybe started these investments for us or set this up for our benefit. It can be perceived as a risk, right? Or being told like, are you sure that's a risk you want to take in your life? And I feel like so much of what's being asked of us right now is to redefine some of these financial terms that we've inherited. Like risk for who? Like what sort of risk? What risk are we taking on by continuing to invest in death dealing industries? And then there's this idea of return. Oh, you got to stay in the market because you're going to get good returns. Returns for who? Where are they coming from? What if return actually meant to return their resources to the communities that they were taken from? And so, yeah, it's, it begins from that place of discomfort and of knowing I can't, I can't keep going as it is. And to go and sit with like, okay, like what, what, do, I, what do I know has to stop? What am I no longer willing to continue in this ancestral line, in this way that we've been with money? And then what do I want to see 
flourish in this time? What are the forms of healing, the forms of economy, the forms of community that I actually want to see growing right now? And how can I move resources towards them? And knowing that whatever risk that's perceived as, that we're, we're moving on a deeper level of avoiding the risk that it is to continue things as they've always been done. That is so enlightening to these words that we hear around financial literacy. Yeah. <laughs> I love how you redefine them and in the work that's being done. In your journey since rebuilding and creating, what has been some of the most powerful moments in the process for yourself? What's coming to mind right now is actually just a few weeks ago. I got married. I had a wedding. It was very exciting. And there's something about a wedding, which was one of my big purposes in doing it. Me and my partner was, we knew that it would bring together our families with community in a way that otherwise would be really hard to make happen. And a lot of the relationships that I've built through redistribution work have become some of my dearest people. Whether it's, yeah, folks whose villages I've supported the rebuilding of or folks whose organizing I've supported. And many of those dear people were at this celebration. And, you know, so were my second cousins once removed. (laughs) And to see these moments of my dad connecting with the people that I've given his money to was so powerful for me and to have him go like oh like that person's doing some great work Morgan and for me to be like yeah I think that's why I need those resources and I and I know it's been hard for you but thank you for the opportunity to have supported that work it was a really really huge moment in my journey with my dad to bring him together with the folks I've been able to to resource that's really beautiful Super, su- moving, like deeply, deeply moving. You know, it was. Yeah. This is the intergenerational moments where you're like, something is being transformed in this moment that is charting a new path of legacy. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really, really, I mean, to have that full circle from me beginning the conversation talking about your dad's, you know, hesitancy and fear about you bringing these stories to life. And then what has come of finding out about your ancestry and the healing, the relationships, it's incredible, really incredible, Mm -hmm. you know, the power of this, of this path of looking back to understand where we are now to then begin to transform the future. One thing, Morgan, that hearing you speak, and I also know that you just graduated from Harvard Divinity School. So you have this, it seems to me, a deep spiritual connection to your existence, your life. And something that I really appreciate about your offerings and your presence is that there's poetry involved and Mm -hmm. present. And so I would like to read a poem that you have on your website that is a Mary Oliver poem called Moments. There are moments that cry out to be fulfilled, like telling someone you love them or 
giving your money away, all of it. Your heart is beating, isn't it? You're not in chains, are you? There is nothing more pathetic than caution when headlong might save a life, even possibly your own. And so a couple things come up for me when I read this poem. One is just the need that I have for art and poetry to understand. Like you're talking about words, you're talking about meaning, and poetry is such a beautiful way to kind of harmonize and make sense and transmute meaning. And then also specifically to this crying out, you had many moments in your life where there was this crying out for you to redistribute wealth and money. And so in your working with other people, what are the the processes or the steps or the things that need to happen when someone does hear that crying out, that calling, however subtle or loud, then what? Instead of the leaning back on never mind, that wasn't like, mm-hmm. ah, or that's too big, or I don't know how to approach that. That's, you know, I don't have people in my circle who are doing that, who are responding in that way. So I can't, then what? When there's that, that calling out, whether it be a whisper or a yell. Thank you so much for reading that poem first. I'm, I don't know if I've ever had anyone read it to me and it just got to touch me again. And I love that we're zooming in on the crying out because, yeah, I feel like that is so much of our responsibility as white folks right now, as folks descended from these histories, is to to take down the parts of ourselves that haven't been able to hear the crying out, whether it's from other human beings, from the earth, from our own ancestors, from future generations, and to like be like, okay, what what does it take? For me to let that grab me and let that pull me towards the life that I've refused to live until now. And it takes support. It takes not going it alone. It takes, I think, my close collaborator, Justine Epstein, we co-facilitate the Ancestors and Money cohort together. She talks a lot about longings and like That's, I think, the crying out that comes from within us out. Like, what are we longing for deep in our bellies, in our souls, however we understand it? Like, what's pulling us out into presence, into the future? And where's the the alignment between that, the crying that we're hearing from the world and from within us? And I think sometimes people show up to the work of redistribution. And I know I did initially with this energy of like pushing away. Oh, this money's dirty. I want to push it away from me. Or like, I don't like this history. So I'm going to somehow make distance with it through this throwing or this pushing. And I think that energy gets us somewhere. It can, it can sometimes bring us to a place of discomfort and needing to take action, but it can't sustain the action and so yeah we really bring folks to looking at their longings for their own life as well as the world like what what is the way that you most long to live and when you listen for that 
where do these resources need to go? When you're connected to that, where do these resources need to go? When you're actively taking steps towards the life that you want to, are moved to, are called to be living, how does your attachment to these resources shift? And where then can it go? So I'm like, oh no, the listeners can't see all my hand gestures. It feels a lot about, about movements and about, yeah, where, where in our bodies are these feelings coming from and how are they meeting the world? The, the relationship, the, the pushing, I can so feel that, that distancing, and even as you talked about it earlier in genealogical research and wanting to separate, you know, with police brutality, you know, separating with the officer, you hear, oh, that was just him. Oh, he's terrible. He should, he should be punished. And the reality of the piece of us that has the conditioning within us and the connection to our own ancestry. If we, if we push away from that, we're pushing away from ourselves. We hate that. We're hating this piece of us that we're hating. I know that's been a full lifelong journey with me as well. In, in this work, how have you found more connection with what connections have blossomed in your life through this work Mm. (laughs) so much um yeah my spiritual political physical home is canto farm here in ohlone territory and this is really like the root and the source of my like support and accountability for this work the relationships that i have here I'm like so, so blessed here to live my daily life alongside movement elders from the Black Power Movement, alongside young indigenous organizers, alongside folks in our sanctuary program are seeking asylum in this country. And like that, yeah, the privilege of living in like this wild experiment of a multiracial community is what roots me and gives me the strength to like keep moving every day in this work and so yeah the connections this beloved family in the making is both what's come from the work and what has created the work through me and then yeah the the connections in the world through this work are the ones I most value in my life both with my like fellow white and or wealthy comrades who are in this work of unlearning and reckoning and healing and surrendering like the depth of that shared commitment is something I hugely value and has created this whole new sense for me of like who we can be and and the relationships that have gotten built through solidarity through redistribution through just showing up to the same work together as best we can with communities of color, many different places across the country. I'm just so grateful for, yeah, the mycelial web of movement that this work has brought me into. So, yeah, my mentor, Anne Simmons Booker here at Canticle Farm, she often says, whenever you hear yourself saying, I can't do this, Make sure you put alone at the end of the sentence because it is true. 
but we can't do this alone. And I found that abundantly true. That's awesome. And you're living into it by creating this, this offering with Justine. You mentioned Justine as your partner. Yeah, as a resource, as uh, a sense of community to help support people. And, you know, when hearing both of you talk about the tendency that is, you know, in my experience, as a result of fear to like separate, to disown, to not want to see, to not want to acknowledge, to not want to share. There's this also kind of like the separation, as you're saying, from yourself. And when I know in my experience, when I feel separate from myself, there is, there's no way that I can fully connect with another human being. And so this process of you know, seeing who you are, knowing who you are, speaking to all the pieces, despite the fear, you know, the fear is there, you know, the fear is not going away. I don't have that much power. <laughs> you know, I'm with the fear. And by, by piecing myself back together, I'm able to be whole. And it sounds like the power of the relationships that you're holding with these people are people who are also dedicated to that process of living in wholeness. and. So I just really want to acknowledge and also highlight the power of community. And then you're offering to the world to provide that for people to have a resource in community of filling into themselves so that they can have this relationship with themselves that then is reciprocated in the love and the connection with other people who are also coming into themselves. Mm, yeah, thanks for seeing that. and. I'll share that um, in the last Ancestors and Money cohort that we did, there was an in-person gathering here at Canticle Farm. And it was just this moment of like welcoming folks I'd been supporting for eight months into my life and into my community to be like, this is one expression of what it's like to share resources and live across difference. and. Um, there was one woman in the group who said, I knew there was a role for me in social movements as a funder. I didn't know that I could sit in the circle. And it was a moment of, wow, is to bring more than just your money, but bring yourself, your story, your spirit to know that, yeah, we're needed in our wholeness and it's only through risking showing up in our wholeness that the parts of ourselves that do need to be left behind can actually begin to loosen a little bit okay and this is just like the whole project phenomenon you know of white supremacy is to keep us separate to other people who are seemingly different and so that moment in the circle that is creating a new culture or, or remembering of who we are you know before these systems of hierarchy and power over and in our iteration which is white supremacy came in there was you know this wholeness which is also of community yes truly and i think there's a spiritual piece that I know I've felt in unraveling this stuff within my own body that was not taught to me 
despite growing up in a religion, uh, United Methodist, there was a different spiritual connection to self, to people around me, to feeling and sensing in a different way in community that I was not taught. And I know in this work, there's a very strong piece of you that clearly is very connected to spirituality. And just wondering in who you are, how does spirituality connect to this work? And what does it mean for you? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was kind of loosely raised in the Church of England. And I feel that how I've come to understand is that spirit is, you asked me about connection and relationship. It's there. It's in the the threads of relationship between me and and all of life. And it's it's that crying out we were talking about. It's like where the parts that are crying out of me meet the parts that are crying out of others. And it's in my relationships with my fellow human beings, with the land, with the more than human beings. And it's also across time. Knowing that we can have a present day embodied relationship with our ancestors. The truth that is not always visible, but it is so present mm-hmm. in ourselves. And you mentioned um, growing up in the UK, knowing your ancestries are, are here and yet getting another experience in this place um, that deeply informed the so-called U.S. in the traditions and in cultural norms that we have. What do you notice when we think about the roots of these systems, the roots of this mindset, white supremacy, slavery? What have you seen with that unique experience growing up in both these places? Thank you for that question. Yeah, it's interesting for me and in one way of looking at it, like I was raised on my ancestral homelands. Is <laughs> one way of looking at it. Yes. And it also is the place from which so much harm was born, as we know. And it's there's similar levels of amnesia and historical erasure there as in the US. Like the history that's taught attempts to look at it more deeply. And so a thing that I'm grateful for is that I, I wasn't raised with the fake American history. So when I came to the U.S. when I was 18, there was a pretty open space in me to receive the critical history that I began to find through social movements, not through school. But I, yeah, I had never done the Pledge of Allegiance. There were so many American things that I hadn't been indoctrinated into, and I was grateful for that even though I had this other form of it from England. And something that's been interesting to me in, in this work of, yeah, in unraveling and examining whiteness for so many people and myself included, there's healing to be found in recovering more ancient European traditions and looking at like what were the ethnic languages, cultures, songs, practices that our ancestors gave up to become white. And colonial history in England is so deep. Like there like English has been spoken in England for a very long time. There's not a pre-English 
language very available, though I do know someone who studies Saxon, which is the before English language of England. I always remember learning as a kid that it was the Romans that cut down all the trees in England like 2,000 years ago. And that was when like wolves and bears and like so much of the ecological tapestry of that land was removed. The history of devastation in England runs so deep that people almost can't even see it. And that's been quite something to reckon with and to sit with and to notice the parts of myself, which is like, oh, I'm just going to embrace the part of me that's Irish or I'm going to embrace the part of me that's not English. But to be like, okay, what's underneath these 2000 years of history in this place? What was this land and what could it still be? And I'm, and I'm not there. That's not what I'm making my work in the world. But I'm, I'm grateful for the folks that are in those questions and living there and working on those histories. So, yeah, thank you for asking that. It, it makes me think about this particular process, but also just you know, the process of being human. But so much of, of this is learning how to live with the juxtaposition of grief, sorrow, and connection, beauty, love, you know, learning how to be versatile in that experience and not closing off, not staying in one side, but to learn how to be with all of it, be with that great grief and that sorrow and to be in, in love and that experience and that evolution of love and connection. This conversation, Morgan, has been so wonderful and circling back to poetry and learning how to metabolize all of this. Uh, for me, repetition, you know, I'm a teacher, so, you know, so much of my daily life is about repetition, you know, and coming at things from different angles. And I love that about poetry, that that kind of is embedded in the art of poetry, that there's this repetition either in words or in repeating sentences or the poems themselves. So we are hoping that to end, you could read the poem of moments to, to close us off. Absolutely. Thank you. So this is Moments by Mary Oliver. There are moments that cry out to be fulfilled, like telling someone you love them or giving your money away, all of it. Your heart is beating, isn't it? You're not in chains, are you? There is nothing more pathetic than caution when headlong might saves a life, even possibly your own. Thank you so much, Morgan, for who you are, how you move in this world, your essence you bring into every room. Thank you for living in your truth. Thank you for being here today. As we close out, is there anything that comes to mind that feels that longing to share? I think I'm complete for now. Just 
Yeah. Thank you both. Thank you for listening to that calling in you to be having public conversations on these topics. And it's, yeah, it's needed for us to take these forms of risk, you know, like, oh, what is it to let our hearts and souls and longings be visible in relationship with some of the most, some of the biggest changes that we need to make within us, between us. So I'm just grateful. Thank you for doing it. Thank you, Morgan. Yes. So this has been another episode of Remembering Us, signing out.